The global order is changing. Neoliberalism is under unprecedented strain. There's a general sense that the rules by which our societies have been structured for the last several decades have broken down, and that our leaders and our institutions have failed us. If neoliberalism was the economic base to the globalization superstructure, what will the consequences of this shift be on the lives of ordinary people? Join Globalization Cafe as we offer uncompromising political and economic analysis on the global issues that affect our everyday lives. Because the political conversation matters. Welcome back to Globalization Cafe. It's been a little while, I know, since our last burst of episodes around Christmas, but it's been a very busy time. I'm back at work, back to the fantastic University of New Brunswick at St. John with new courses, uh, wonderful new students, and a whole series of new opportunities and challenges and lots of new ideas, which I hope will feed in to the podcast series as we go forward. But today, we're back. Globalization Cafe is back, and we've got a really fantastic episode for you today. How should I go about introducing today's guest? Well, his name's Ibrahim Shikaki. He's an economist. He's doing a PhD in economics at the uh, New School for Social Research in New York. He's taught economics at the universities of Birzeit and Al-Quds in Palestine. And he's also published widely, including for Ashabaka uh, and for the Bisan Research Center. But to be honest, to me, he's far more than this. When I was doing my PhD and doing a lot of field work in the West Bank, he was one of a core group of people who I knew I could totally depend on. He helped me in countless different ways, in both professionally and just through being a really great friend. And I really owe him and the, the other few people who I depended on a lot and, and learned from an enormous amount. I, I am all a great deal and I'm continually grateful to them for giving me the help, the insight, the support, uh, and most importantly, the friendship uh, throughout that time. But anyway, today we're talking about the politics and economics of Palestine under occupation and in the context of the collapsing uh, so-called peace process. the beautiful town of Tulkarim in the northern part of the, the West Bank. I did my undergrad at uh, Birzeit University. And after that, I, I spent seven, eight years of my life working in Palestine, uh, first at a Palestinian uh, research center, the Palestine Economic Policy Research Institute. That, that's a mouthful. Uh, and then a few years at the International Humanitarian Law Research Center, uh, another mouthful, uh, with the Swedish uh, NGO Deacunia. My work mainly focused on macroeconomic aspects of the political economy of Palestine, uh, as well as the impact of the Israeli occupation uh, on Palestinian economic activity. Um, my recent publication actually touches on that. Um, I, I authored a report for the Association of International Development Agencies in Palestine, or IDA, um, in the memory of 50 years of occupation. So the title was 50 Years of Occupation, Dispossession, uh, Deprivation, and Dedevelopment. It kind of synthesized the political economy aspect with a little bit of 
international law. And uh, you know, currently I'm I'm a PhD candidate at the New School for Social Research, which has one of the very few remaining uh, heterodox or non-mainstream departments of economics. And uh, my research topic can be broadly categorized into that two themes. The first is that functional distribution of income. So in other words, how income is divided between wages on the one side and then profit, rent, and interest on the other within the Palestinian economy given the time series. And then basically allowing us to have a structural class analysis with some sort of quantitative touch. And the other part or the other theme is to try and provide a suitable or close to a suitable theoretical framework for the Palestinian economy that encompasses the Israeli occupation and its measures. So that's currently what I'm doing. Well, it sounds like a very impressive uh, resume already, that does. Um, okay. Um, so you, you mentioned you've been sitting, uh, watching the, uh, the the vote at the UN General Assembly today um, uh, on uh, yeah. the, the world's reactions yeah. to, to to Trump's uh, uh, decision to move the, well, to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Um, what, what's, you, what's your reaction to, to that uh, move by Donald Trump? Well, uh, okay, so the first thing, and I think as many might have already commented regarding this, it might not have any immediate physical direct effect, right? So Israel, in clear violation of international law, legally and practically, has annexed the eastern part of the city after 1967. Uh, it still needed to deal with the Palestinian population. So again, they decided to grant them Israeli IDs, but not Israeli passport. And basically, since then, they continued to push out the Palestinian population through ID revocation, house demolition, land confiscation, several of the points that were mentioned in the last podcast about this, and continues harassing Palestinians in, in East Jerusalem. So the point is, this already has been happening for the last 50 years, right? Uh, now, the U.S. announcement basically gives Israel that green light, not only to continue these measures, but to, to intensify them. I guess from a political aspect, the most critical part is that, you know, green light to continue building additional illegal settlement units uh, in the existing settlements, but also the whole um, E1 area around the settlement of Malay or Dumim. The, the E1 plan uh, was pushed back by the UN, the EU, and some even say by the US previously. However, the concern with that announcement uh, on December 6th by Trump is that this might encourage the right-wing settler government in power right now to displace the Palestinian communities residing in that area and going ahead uh, with that plan, which is seen by many as, as the last or, you know, the last, last nail in the coffin of the two-state uh, solution. But to be honest, what I really think this impacts the most is, is the image of the U.S. more than anything else. Um, first, within let's call it the diplomatic international community, we saw that in you know the the overwhelming disagreement of countries around the world and country leaders with the uh, decision, the latest uh, 14 to 1 UN Security Council vote, the 128 to 9 UN General Assembly uh, General Assembly vote, um, and by the PA, basically clearly signaling it would not accept the U.S. as a peace broker. Um, but secondly, 
I mean, and a lot of people have been saying this, this puts the American interests around the world under increased threat. I mean, I remember back in, in 2010, um, there was this famous quote from uh, General David Petraeus uh, in his disposition, uh, deposition in front of the, the U.S. Senate Committee. He was basically saying that the American-Israeli relations are a liability to the U.S., and that because of this perceived, uh, according to him, favoritism, that U.S. partnership in the Arab and Islamic world were, were very frail. And so I believe this move would only add fuel to the fire regarding that and just continue to isolate the U.S. Uh, under this current administration. I think that's a great point. I mean, there's really uh, the the shift, the, the division between, we could pr- probably argue, uh, sort of pragmatists versus the, uh, the, the sw- sort of swivel-eyed maniacs, it was starting to, to become evident under Obama, but now, I mean, the the monkeys have taken over the zoo, it seems, haven't they? So, yeah, I think you make a really good point there. No, no, absolutely. I mean, if I were in the place of the U.S. government, I mean, I would do what the U.S. government has continued to do, you know, give a little bit of lip service to, to the Palestinians while continuing to give billions of dollars of aid and military aid to, to Israel. Yet, again, like you, like you mentioned, I mean, Opening up the zoo is, is a very good uh, metaphor here. So um, a lot of the reaction around the world uh, has been about the symbolism of Jerusalem, uh, you know, the, the uh, a city that's important for, for three Abrahamic religions, uh, obviously uh, a, a capital city for Palestine. Um, um, but it's not just a it's not just a symbol, is it? It's a city. And, and it's a working city with with a, a fairly sizable Palestinian population, even though they're being slowly driven out. Can you tell us a bit about how the city works? How it's, about the Jerusalem's economy? Maybe the role it's played in the past, uh, the and the versus what it plays in the what uh, the role it plays at present. Sure, sure. I mean, I I guess you know it's not it's not difficult to understand why Jerusalem and and perhaps Bethlehem, both Jerusalem and Bethlehem, uh, are basically the pillars in terms of tourism, at least. So you know, Jerusalem, particularly the eastern part, has played a, a key role in the economy, particularly in that tourism sector. Now, the problem is that with continued Israeli measures in the eastern part, the constant messages to tourists of the threats of the eastern part, you know, where the barbarians live, basically mean that the vast majority of tourists are now actually staying in the Israeli part, in the Israeli-owned hotels in the western part of the city. And there was a recent statistic basically saying that 85% of tourists would rather stay now than in the Israeli-owned uh, hotels in the western part, rather than uh, going to the Palestinian uh, hotels in the eastern part. So this is, is very important because tourism plays a major role in the economy of Jerusalem, but also uh, within the Palestinian uh, economy. And it's not only the, the tourism sector. So, so you know, businesses in, in general are under continued threat. Firstly, obviously because of the dire situation of the residents, which basically means from a macroeconomic perspective, you have a deficiency in aggregate demand. People don't have the income to buy. Um, But on the other hand, Palestinian businesses basically have to fight against Israeli taxes, which are set to fit the income and living standards of, uh, of the Israeli economy. So remember, today, if you look at the GDP per capita, which is, you know, the 
total output divided by the number of population. In Israel, that figure is around $35,000. That's the GDP per capita. And that's the figure and that's the, the level of economic, uh, uh, the, the standard of living, the, the level of income that um, Israel takes into consideration when setting taxes. With Palestinians, that figure is around 2,000. So again, 35,000 versus 2,000. That's the GDP per capita for Israelis versus Palestinians. Yet, Palestinians have to pay the taxes that are set for that living standard. So in Jerusalem, because it's under the Israeli control, they have to pay six different taxes, including the, the infamous, infamous uh, uh, Arnona, which, again, uh, I, uh, I heard you talk in the last podcast about when talking about Jerusalem. Many of these Palestinian businesses were forced to sell their property. Uh, it was immediately facilitated to Jewish owners. And again, these, these efforts are not anecdotes, right? There's a systematic, intentional public plan. This is not, there's a public plan of the Jerusalem municipality to gradually change the demographic composition. There, this was a very famous response to population estimates that by 2020, there's going to be a, a 60, 40 share uh, uh, of, of uh, the, the population. And the municipality was trying to push Palestinians out to increase the share of the Jewish population in, in East Jerusalem. So you clearly see the impact. So, so the measures on the hotels, the measures on the tourism sector and businesses are very clear. Uh, unemployment in East Jerusalem was around 20% in, in 2014. Currently, I think it's around 16%. Um, so if you compare that actually to the Palestinian uh, unemployment rate, that's actually slightly lower. And the only reason it is slightly lower is because workers in East Jerusalem actually have access to work within the Israeli market. So more than 30% of workers from East Jerusalem actually work within the Israeli market, uh, compared to only 10% in the overall Palestinian labor force. Um, this is basically led, and, and again, the latest figures I think were from 2014 or 15, poverty rates within Palestinians in East Jerusalem are above 80%. Um, again, compare that, for example, to the Jewish settler population in East Jerusalem, that's only 30%. So 80% of Palestinians live under the, the poverty line. And it's very important, Phil, to put those two figures together because even though there's only, let's call it only, 15 or 16 percent unemployment, you have 80 percent of families under the, the poverty line, which basically means that even if you do have a job, you cannot secure even living under the poverty line. And I think this, this is the problematic aspect. So again, to some, I would say that the Israeli economic policies parallel the humanitarian and legal violation, and ultimately they work together towards pushing Palestinians and entrenching and expanding uh, illegal settlements. That's a really great point that, that you see the sort of real life almost hidden by the uh, by the figures there. That's that's really helpful. Th thanks. Maybe you can uh, perhaps tell us a bit more in uh, in in as simple terms as it's possible. For, for you to do as an economist uh, about about the uh, the Palestinian economy in general, because um, <clears throat> I think we've we've talked a lot on the podcast about how Trump's sort of 
announcement about Jerusalem might be the icing on the cake, but the the cake of occupation has been 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 cooking for quite some time. So, can you give us an insight of how does the economy work in Palestine in general, if it works at all? Yeah, yeah. So, I guess the most important thing, aside from you know the figures and and the economic sectors and looking at the labor force and whatnot, is just understand the framework. And the framework is one of dependency. Simply put, it just suggests that if you have two economies that are very close to each other, you have a poor Palestinian economy and you have a strong Israeli economy, what will happen is two sets of movements. That's all that you need to understand from the relationship between the Palestinian and the Israeli economy. You have a set of movement of natural and human resources. Those move from the poor to the strong economy. The second is the movement of final goods, and goods move in the opposite direction, from the strong economy to the poor economy. So there is no better textbook, I would argue, uh, textbook example of dependency framework uh, more than the passing Israeli economy. So again, let's think of those movements. On the one hand, you have natural resources, land, water. Uh, the Dead Sea minerals, stones and sand quarries, etc. Natural resources moving from the Palestinian uh, control and economy to the Israeli one. Human resources, same thing. Palestinian workers moving into the Israeli economy. Uh, before the first intifada, I believe in 1987, there were up to 40% almost half the workforce working in Israel. So that's the first set of movement. The other set of movement is the movement of goods. And so for that report, I was compiling data. And basically in the last 50 years, around 80% of Palestinian imports, what Palestinian import from the rest of the world, 80% were from and through Israel. So these manifestation of dependency, the movement of resources on the one side and the movement of goods on the other side, create this, uh, you know, this, this cycle. Um, and as a result, you can, I mean, clearly see 50 years ago, productive sectors, agriculture, manufacturing, we used to produce, they used to employ 50% of the labor force. They used to participate, contribute in 40% of our output. This was the role of the productive sectors. Nowadays, instead of employing 50% of the workforce, those sectors only employ 20. Nowadays, instead of contributing to 40% of production, these productive sectors are only contributing to, to 12 or 13% of production. So. The idea is that we're not producing, but at the same time, we're consuming the goods that are, are coming out. So this dependency framework is very important. It's also worth noting in the end that there have been additional dependencies specifically since uh, the establishment of the PA. Um, I mean, you have to recognize that after Oslo, basically Israel de facto transferred the responsibility uh, to the PA. But of course, they never transferred the resources or control, which basically meant that there's been an increasing dependence on international aid. So that's an additional uh, uh, dependency that we've had aside from this traditional dependency relation between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And to be honest, since 
2005, 2006, we've also had an issue with dependency on, on credit, uh, on, on loans, on credit facilities. And again, this, these are not credit or, or loan facilities that are going to productive sector, that are going to employment generation opportunities. These are going to consumption-related spending. So they're going to consumer durables, to cars, to apartments, rather than actually going to employment uh, or, or employment-generating uh, opportunities. So this, I believe, is the best way, without getting into details of details, of understanding that framework of dependency and why it is completely impossible to think of any viable Palestinian economy while the Israeli occupation remains and while control over borders and policies and taxes and whatnot are still under Israeli control. So to, to, if I could just sort of pass that really simply then, the, what, you, what you're saying is that there, there isn't really a pro- productive Palestinian economy anymore because of the occupation and therefore there's a greater dependence, ever greater dependence on foreign aid. <laughs> Exactly. So what I'm saying is that because of that, you have this increased dependence on international aid and not not on even on development. Right. We're saying that month by month, the Palestinian Authority has to make sure that it gets enough of international aid to pay the, the monthly wage for Palestinian employees in the public sector. So this is the extent that, that we have the dependency on. Not that, you know, if we don't have it, then our, our streets are going to be uh, uh, not fixed or, or, or whatnot. We're talking about basic salaries of 150, 160,000 families. And so that's the type of dependency that uh, international aid has created during the last 20, 25 years. So that really uh, strikes at the, the core of, of the, the, the two-state sort of framework, doesn't it? Because we've heard for so long that the, there's, there's two sides to this, that they strengthen Israel's security and that they strengthen the Palestinian economy. I mean, that was the essentially the reason for Tony Blair's entire job. Uh, uh, and... Uh, <laughs> And and since then, there's been there's more more efforts. Oh, John Kerry used to make promises after promises about going to strengthen the Palestinian economy. So what you're what you're saying is that all this effort to strengthen the Palestinian economy has effectively just deepened the dependence on aid, uh, and uh, and has really done nothing to uh, to help prop up the sort of the fundamentals. I mean, absolutely. And uh, I think nowadays uh, the vast majority of people in decision-making positions, especially within the, the, the Palestinian Authority, recognize that. It's not that this is a, this is a secret. Um, again, basically, after the four or five years after the Oslo Accords, specifically since the beginning of the Second Intifada, you've seen it very clearly. I mean, the only aid that was going during the first years of the Intifada was actually coming to rebuild what Israel had already destroyed. So in one way, the international community was paying the bill for what Israel was destroying in, in infrastructure and in, in buildings. Well, what, does, what does this all mean? I mean, if you, t- if you took everything together, um, uh, I think you've, you've, you've outlined a very good, uh, a very cutting analysis of what the, the peace process in inverted commas has meant. Uh, but if you put this together with what you're talking about with U.S. foreign policy and the the this the seemingly obviousness that this is a failure um what does what does this mean for this this idea of the peace process going forward uh, yeah i mean 
so you know you know what I, I think i I don't think there's anything today at least that we can call the, the peace process again, I would argue that since the onset of the second Intifada in September two thousand there's no such thing now look some might say, ah, oh, you know it's easy for us now twenty four or twenty five years after the Oslo Accord to pass judgment and at that time, the PLO's stance in the whole Iraq-Kuwait war, the fall of the bipolar world order, the, the continuous migration of the PLO leadership from Amman to Beirut to Tunisia. So some might say, you know, at that time, anything is better than nothing. I'm not going to entertain that now, but I want to say today, now, after 24 years, there is a consensus. Like I mentioned, even within Palestinian officials, even people who put the Oslo Accords there, that the so-called peace process was an instrument for Israel to continue with its measures, to continue creating facts on the ground, you know, the, the whole idea of, of negotiating over that, that piece of cake while eating it. Um, but, you know, with some sort of diplomatic cover, in one way, it, it was a way to whitewash Israeli measures that were becoming specifically more and more apparent right after the first intifada. And again, I don't think it's a coincidence that if you look at the main condition that Israel had, or at least one of the main conditions that Israel had to agree to go to the Madrid talks in the early 90s before Oslo, one of the main conditions was to revoke that UN General Assembly resolution from, from 75 that stated that you know, Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination. And as far as I understand, that is the only UN General Assembly resolution to be rescinded or, or to be uh, revoked. So basically, Israel continued what it was doing before the so-called peace process. It continued to confiscate land, steal land, build settlements encourage settlers to move, imprison, torture, and kill Palestinians, and basically strangle the Palestinian economy and, and any economic activity. So this was the only difference is that it was done under the protection uh, of diplomatic talks. And I think that is now, right, not 25 years ago, that is the only way you can look at the political peace process for the last 25 years. Uh, we've heard that uh, uh, the Palestinian uh, Authority President Abbas has has said that he he no longer accepts uh, the U.S.'s role as a as a moderator. Um, what does this? I mean, how how do you see this the things developing over the next ten to to twenty years in this context? Uh, you know. Uh... So that, that's the million-dollar question. <laughs> I, I, I doubt many, many people would be courageous to actually predict what will happen next year, let alone the, 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 first, uh, the, the next 10 or 20 years. But, uh, well, you know, because first there's the, these dynamics of right-wing populism around Europe and the U.S. You know, you don't know what's going to happen with Trump and his evangelical Christian Zionist sidekick. Uh, uh, but then you also have developments in neighboring countries, Syria, the role of Russia, Iran, Turkey, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, again, of course, then there's the internal Palestinian uh, developments and what might happen there, which, again, I presume that that's what you're asking about. Um, I guess, as always, you can think about it in, in you know, two or three different scenarios, probably three scenarios that, that I think 
are are possible. The most probable, and personally the least favorable uh, for me, would be that in the next years the PA will use this Trump decision as another lifeline, basically, to use rhetoric about its heroic diplomatic battle in the UN, which, again, I, mean, I, I think it was a good thing to, to go there and, and show the hypocrisy of the, of the U.S. and Israel. But there's going to be ideas, that's it, ideas flowing around about whether other countries can play a role, whether Russia and China, whether the international community, the U.N. can play a role or the role of the U.S. in the peace process. But basically nothing will change. This is the most probable uh, 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 scenario during these years, economic security, any type of coordination will continue, settlement expansion will continue, and, and nothing will really change. There is a second scenario, which is also likely, but I guess not as much as the first, is that the PA actually realizes that this might be their last chance. That. In fact, this is an opportunity for them to, to repent after all these years. They, they actually really cut security count, uh, coordination uh, with Israel. They go to the ICC regarding Israel's war crime. And they establish a real space, because they have been talking about this recently, but maybe that they establish real space for debate around the possibility of, of one state, what that means, I don't know, having a referendum, even if it's only within the West Bank and Gaza Strip around this. Again, this is a likely scenario, but I, I'm not sure as likely as, as the first. And finally, the least probable one, which not surprising for me is the most favorable one, uh, would be some sort of voluntary or involuntary, let's call it that, voluntary or involuntary uh, change of leadership, um, some sort of social change instigated by youth movements, the worker unions, university students, the segments of society. So uh, I know the idea is that this movement would challenge the entrenched rule of political parties without completely disregarding them. I do believe, and you know, Phil, you know a lot of uh, Palestinian youth, and you know that the new generation of Palestinian men and women have so much potential, have so much energy. Um, there are several wonderful small-scale initiatives that are happening uh, in Palestine and outside, and personally, it does give me hope. Now, I understand, of course, uh, this is very far from reality today. Uh, if you look at the situation of youth movements and, and look at the, the segments of society that actually uh, participate in the decision-making uh, for Palestinians, this does seem uh, uh, more of a dream. Uh, but I do believe that at least there might be a possibility to accumulate on the, the, some of the experiences of the last few years after the Arab Spring, um, in Palestine, there was a lot of coordination. Palestinians started talking to each other from the West Bank and Gaza and, and, and 48 in Jerusalem and Palestinian refugees around Palestine and Palestinian diaspora all around the world. So it's maybe still the very, very beginning. It maybe actually haven't, hasn't really started. But um, I do believe this 
might be a, a, a scenario, maybe unlikely today, but uh, I think uh, for me at least, I would say that would be the most favorable uh, scenario. Well, that's definitely a, a nice positive uh, positive note that we haven't had many of recently. After, after everything we've said here, I had to end on some sort of positive note. <laughs> well, that's super. Thank you so much, Ibrahim. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. And um, I, I, you, you said you might come to Montreal next year, so I really hope you do. Sure, sure. Absolutely, yeah. This podcast series was originally produced with the help and support of the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa, and we're still extremely grateful to them. It was produced by me, Dr. Philip Bleach No. If you'd like further information or to get in touch, find us on our website at globalizationcafe.com, on Twitter at Cafe Global, or on Facebook, where you'll find updates about forthcoming shows and other research and activities that we're up to.